Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Hello, everybody. This is Jeff. Joy is on vacation in Jamaica this week with her family. I hope the beaches are beautiful. Here I am in the recording studio back at home. Because we didn't have a new episode for you this week, we thought we'd put together a little compilation of some of our favorite segments from the history of the show, the first 50 episodes. And so here is Compilation Volume 1. These aren't necessarily the best segments we've ever done, but they are some of our favorites and the ones that we remembered. And so we wanted to share them with you. So let's start out with a section from episode 36, Things That Make You Go Goo, where we watched the movie The Mummy. Holy shit balls! Do you want to talk about the plagues? Oh boy. The ten plagues of Egypt, I've also known as more... the biblical plagues. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's do it. He's like, I've never been more. I'm like, well, I don't care. We're going to talk about it. So I'm not a religious woman, Jeff, but I have heard of the ten plagues of Egypt, and I've also seen The Prince of Egypt which is a delightful animated film. So you get it. That's all you need it. to That's know. That's all I need to know. But the biblical plagues, they're described in Exodus 7 through 12, for those of you who don't know. They were 10 disasters sent upon Egypt by God to convince Pharaoh to free the Israelite slaves from the bondage and oppression that they had endured in Egypt for 400 years. When God sent Moses to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, he promised to show his wonders as confirmation of Moses' authority. And it was meant to serve two purposes, both to, you know, obviously prove some shit to Pharaoh, but also to prove to the Israelites who were pretty down and out that there was still yeah. a reason to believe in God. They're like, 400 years, man, we've been worshiping you. And yeah. You're not going to do anything? Yeah, <laughs> can we get some can help? Can we get, like, 10 helps? Yeah. It's interesting to put... The idea of like monotheism and then like the multi-deity mm-hmm. ideas of uh, Egyptians face to face. So this was the other idea was that God was supposed to show Pharaoh that it's like your multiple gods are nothing in comparison to just mm-hmm. the one the one true God. So like in Egypt, obviously, there was like the God of the sun, the river, childbirth, crops and everything. So all of these plagues were supposed to attack those individual gods Mm, i didn't even think about it like that like they were specifically 10 different gods of different things yeah and then the 10 plagues or or there might be some overlap but they were Mm -hmm. like separate god and all of the totally makes sense yeah it's super cool so that's the 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 biblical context for it but you know historians have suggested that the plagues are passed down accounts of several natural disasters or others that might have been playing part in some kind of chain reaction Mm -hmm. so let's go through what the plagues are because to me i needed a little refresher but then also what those natural explanations could be Mm -hmm. ready First plague, turning the Nile to blood. This was supposed to be a judgment against Apis, who is the god of the Nile, Isis, who is the goddess of the Nile, and Knum, who was the guardian of the Nile. The Nile was also believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. So the river formed the basis of daily life and the national economy. That was devastated. You know, millions of fish died and the water was unusable and that kind of thing. Pharaoh was told, by this you will know that I am the Lord. A possible natural explanation could be that rising temperatures could have turned the Nile into a slow-moving, muddy water course. Mm. Conditions favorable for the spread of toxic freshwater algae. As the algae dies, it turns the water red in a phenomenon known as burgundy blood. Oh, I've heard about these like red plumes or something. Yeah. So this could be as a result of an environmental change such as drought. Uh And that could have contributed to the spread of this type of bacteria, which generally thrives in kind of like stagnant oxygen deprived water. That makes sense. Right. Second plague, bringing frogs from the Nile. This was a judgment against Hedget, I believe is the name. That's the frog headed goddess of birth. Now, frogs were thought to be sacred and not to be killed, so God had the frogs invade every part of the homes of the Egyptians, and when the frogs died, their stinking bodies were heaped up in offensive piles all through the land. The natural explanation is that any blight in the water that killed fish also could have caused frogs to leave the river and probably oh, die. Oh, that's a good point. Third plague, gnats. <laughs> I love that. It's like, if they're all connected somehow, that would be even more incredible. Totally. The third and fourth are connected. Third plague, gnats, was a judgment on Set, the god of the desert. Now, unlike the previous plagues, magicians were unable to duplicate this one, and they themselves declared to the pharaoh, like, this is the finger of God, man. <laughs> Penn and Teller can't figure yeah, this out. exactly. No bullshit on this. <laughs> 
So this this ties into the fourth plague, which was flies. This was a judgment on Huachit, the fly god. Now, of course, the Israelites were protected from all of this. So that was the other thing that was like, whoa, no swarms of flies are bothering them. What's going mm. on here? Now, the natural... They had ex- bug spray. Right, exactly. The natural explanation here is that the lack of frogs in the river would have let insect populations, you know, oh, sprout. Now, they were normally kept in check by the frogs, and then they increased massively instead. So then the rot- rotting corpses of fish and frogs could have also attracted significantly more insects to the areas near the Nile. Oh, my God. I love this shit. I know. God, learning is great. Let me interrupt with a quick anecdotal story. When I was in Hebrew school, I remember one of the teachers telling me about one of the elements of, like, Moses crossing the river, the Red Sea. And it was like, it's not how it is in the movies where he like slams his staff down and like a walls of water show up. They were like telling me that it was like a weird thing involving the Red Sea that Mm -hmm. it could very quickly go from like being really shallow to being really deep. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that like the northern areas were all flooded at this Mm -hmm. time and the south was all flooded. And so it's more like a natural thing that would have happened that it would have gone really shallow for a period of time, Mm -hmm. allowed the Israelites Mm -hmm. to cross and then grown very quickly and not allowed the people after them to cross. And I remember just thinking like, oh, so not God, right? right? And right. they were like, no, 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 God does the natural things. Right, but I mean, and I I can appreciate that in the grand history of like lying to children. Right. I'm sort of like, <laughs> I'm more okay with the idea of being like, now there is a possibility that these accounts could have had some basis in truth. But again, like when the ultimate thing is like, but it's God that led the right. hand to do the thing. There's controversial accounts as to whether or not any of this shit went yeah. down in this regard. I just remember really feeling like they were like trying to be like, no, here's why God is real. And right. I was like, oh, that's why God is not real. Right, exactly. That makes exactly. total sense. For little, for little scientist Jeff, yeah. he's like, no. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the fifth plague, which is the death of livestock. This was supposed to be a judgment on the goddess Hathor and the god Apis, who I mentioned before. They were both depicted as cattle, though. God protected his people from the plague while the cattle of the Egyptians died. And Egypt's economy was being destroyed at this time. And God is showing his peeps that, you know, "Eh, where it's at, man. (laughs) This ties into the sixth plague, which is boils. This was a judgment against several gods over health and disease, Sekhmet, Sunu, and Isis. Now, a natural explanation could be that the biting flies in the region, which transmit livestock disease, Uh like their increase in numbers could have also sparked epizootics, which we've talked about, all of those bug diseases that Mm -hmm. Contagion talks about, (laughs) including boils. I I couldn't be loving this more. Now, we're getting towards the end, and this is when shit gets a little bit even more crazy. So before God sent the last three plagues, Pharaoh was given a special message from God. These last three plagues, they're going to be worse than the others. They're designed to convince Pharaoh and all the people that there is none like me on all the earth. And Pharaoh was even told that he was placed in position by God so that God could show his power and declare his name through all of earth. And God warned Pharaoh to gather whatever cattle and crops remained from the previous plagues and shelter them from the coming storm. Pharaoh didn't do that. So (laughs) seventh plague comes, and that is hail. This was a judgment against Newt, the sky goddess, Osiris, the crop fertility god, and Set, the storm god. And this was unlike any that the Egyptians had seen before. This was accompanied by a fire which ran along the ground, and everything left out in the open was devastated by hail and fire. Again, children of Israel were miraculously protected. Natural explanation? could be a volcanic eruption resulting in showers of rock and fire. A volcanic eruption of the volcano Thera did occur in antiquity and could have caused some of the plagues if it occurred at the right time. Now, that particular volcano is 650 miles away from the northwest part of Egypt, and the eruption was controversially dated to about 1628 BC, which is one of the largest volcanoes on record. Mm -hmm. And even, like, global impacts have still been recorded. They've been found in the Nile Delta, tree ring frost scars in the bristlecone pines of the western United States, and a layer of ash in the Greenland ice caps. These are all dated to about the same time, like same chemical footprint as Thera. So it's like both demonstrating that those effects could be felt Mm -hmm. far away, but it's still believed that the the date of Thera was still like hundreds of years before Exodus is said to have happened. Okay. So it's not necessarily saying like Thera is the reason, but like, ash and fire and hail and like weird weather patterns as a result of volcanoes that is a thing yeah well i remember it was like a few years ago that i'm gonna not even pretend to try to pronounce the name of it (laughs) but there was a swedish volcano that's like you know those swedes and it like had such a huge eruption that airlines had to ground their flights and stuff because there was so much ash in the in the sky it went miles and miles and miles so it's like totally believable that a volcano that was really far away would have had severe effects absolutely like godlike effects (laughs) 
<laughs> in the biblical, skies. B- biblical biblical effects. That's the word. Oh, Thank you, Joy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Eighth plague, locusts. This again focused on Newt, Osiris, and Set, the, the crop gods or whatever. Now the crops, wheat and rye, which had survived the hail, were now devoured by swarms of locusts. Mm. So that really fucked up the Egyptian economy as well. Now, according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, when they get hungry, a one-ton horde of locusts can eat the same amount of food in one day as 2,500 humans can. Wow. Uh, yeah. Holy I was like, shit. shit. So it's not saying some like, actually, what caused the locusts to do They're just saying like, yeah, man, locusts fucking they just suck. <laughs> but still, like, I would imagine that might have something to do with weather patterns, you know, like totally. animals respond to their climates and... There's also like sometimes like a perfect storm of things like what cicadas only 17 years right, and right, right. you know the, there's they come certain out and, they, yeah. mm-hmm, and if you get kind of like that combined with a volcano combined totally. with a this you're like well this has got to be God this has got to be God Fuck. it's got to be God this has got to be God ninth plague darkness this was aimed at the sun god is it Ra or it's spelled R E but I feel it's Ra isn't it R A Ra I've seen it spelled multiple ways oh. I think it's Ra. But we'll say Ra. Cool. The sun um, god. <laughs> now, for three days, the land of Egypt was smothered with an unearthly darkness, but the homes of the Israelites had light. Now, the natural explanation of this is the immediate cause of this plague is theorized to be the Hamsin, which is a south or southwest wind charged with sand and dust, which blows about the spring equinox and at times produces darkness rivaling that of the worst London fogs. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, it doesn't say specifically why the Jews' homes were okay, but I would imagine maybe if they're just location right right you know maybe there were like a couple accounts of darkness but then other parts of the city or Mm -hmm. you know it's also sometimes you know it was like it was really dark over there and it was like kind of lighter over here right turns into like and there was perfect light (laughs) exactly and and over there it was darkness (laughs) it was in cloak of midnight (laughs) right right oh my gosh okay the 10th and final plague and this this is the big one the big one death of the firstborn males this was a judgment on isis the protector of children ISIS. I know. Old school ISIS. <laughs> OG ISIS OG was ISIS. like, okay, she was good. <laughs> so this plague required an act of faith by the Israelites, right? You might have heard about this, where God commanded each family to take an unblemished male lamb and kill it. And the blood of the lamb was to be smeared on the tops and the sides of their doorways, and the lamb was to be roasted and eaten that night. Now, any family that did not follow God's instructions would suffer this final plague. And he like only told the Jews? Yeah. Of course. So <laughs> God described how he would then send the death angel through the land of Egypt with orders to slay the firstborn male in every household, whether human or animal. Now, the only protection was the blood of the lamb on the door. When the angel would see the blood, he would pass over that house and leave it untouched. This is where the term Passover comes from. Mm-hmm. While the Israelites found God's protection in their homes, every other home in the land of Egypt experienced God's wrath as their loved ones died. And that's when Pharaoh finally released the Israelites. So Passover as, as a holiday, it's a memorial of that night named Egypt when God delivered his people from bondage. Yeah, part of it is like when we eat the bitter herbs because of the bitterness that the Jews felt sure. back then, it's like, oh man, I really feel what they felt. Exactly. I know exactly what it was like. Tasting a bitter herb. Yeah. Do you sacrifice lambs and put that on your doorway? No. No, no we just, it's yeah. like, and then it's like, this thing represents the mortar that we right. should have. Uh, I, I just, know. you know, again, it's like, I don't want to make it like super judgy right now because it's like, I'm so fascinated by mythology. I love our history and I love symbolism, but there's got to be at least some like, yeah, I mean, you know, this is what they say. Right. <laughs> so, as opposed yeah. to being like, we are going to, we believe this to be completely right. true. Right. Anyway, here's a natural explanation for this. It's a little bit, iffy just because it's like how do you explain not only firstborn humans dying but firstborn animals as well so if the last plague indeed selectively tended to affect the firstborn it could be due to food polluted during the time of darkness either by locusts or by the black mold cladosporium and the assumption is that when people emerged after the darkness the firstborn would be given priority with food Uh as was usual and they, so they would be more likely to be affected by any sort of, you know, foodborne toxin. Okay. Like I said, it's hard to say because how do you explain firstborn cattle dying or whatever? Right. But they're also saying that the Israelites, one of the reasons they might not have been affected is they generally eat food that was prepared and eaten very quickly, which would have made it less likely to be contaminated. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there is all sorts of stuff about prioritizing the firstborn mm-hmm. and that being the one who's going to own all the land and take the family name forward and stuff and, all and the so dudes, it yeah. does make sense that they would be like treated differently and that oops yeah you know <laughs> oopsie daisy 
So after all of this, Pharaoh releases the Israelites, but then he gets, you know, his heart gets hardened against the Israelites and he sends his chariots after them. And that's when God opens this way through the Red Sea for the Israelites and then mm -hmm. drowns all of Pharaoh's armies there. And the power of Egypt was crushed. Moses is in the desert. They're wandering. And then the Jews and were the Jews happily ex ever, ever after. after exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Jews lived happily ever after. Nothing ever went wrong again. <laughs> Fuck. That's my favorite segment that we've done. Probably the reason you feel that way is not only is it just like cool, interesting, sciencey shit. Right. But it's learning about something that has been so ingrained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, that's what they said. God just... Right. Uh, or I completely had written off as being complete nonsense. So it's like... Mm -hmm. it's it's great to not only shine some light on the reality here, yeah. but then even for my fucking anti-theist brain, right, you know, right, getting right. in there and being like, maybe there is some truth. Maybe these things actually did happen, but it's just not God. Well, that's the really cool thing is that most of these ancient stories are based in something. Right. Like somebody saw something somewhere. Mm -hmm. And finding the logical explanations for those things is like, I love it. Right. I, there's, I and just it also, love it. <laughs> and it also doesn't make us any like less whole or rich no, or beautiful no. of people. If anything, I think it makes us like richer as mm -hmm. a history to just know that, you know, like these ancient peoples, then they documented this shit. And right. now in 2017, you and I are talking about it. And then there's this other group of scientists that has been researching this shit so that I can Google it and fucking <laughs> talk to you about it. It's awesome. Ugh, I love the world. <laughs> I love it. Next up is a little section from episode 47, A Giant Game of Simon, where we watched the movie Close Encounters of the third kind. With all of the questions about like communicating with extraterrestrial intelligence, there's a lot of questions that surround communicating with dolphins as a route to being right. able to communicate with aliens. And right now we know that dolphins have a complicated language among themselves. We just don't know what they're saying yet. Sure. And they have these like signature whistles that they use to identify each other. Like when a group of dolphins meet each other in a group, they'll use specific whistles to address each other the same way that humans use names. Oh. So it's like on that level. Dolphins do seem to understand us to a certain degree. They'll like take commands and understand both the meaning and the order of words. And they'll do stuff like put an item on the right side of their tank and do a bucket on the left. And right, like right. They'll take commands and understand them. But right now, we're not just trying to get them to understand us. We're trying to understand them. And this year, a group of scientists are starting a four-year dolphin language project, which is using AI software that was originally developed to understand more than 40 human languages. Oh, my God, yes. And they're going to use it to study captive bottlenose dolphins at a wildlife park in Sweden. And it has two main purposes. Like, one is to in improve the language learning AI software. But the other is that they think that we may actually be able to literally translate dolphin language by 2021. Oh, my God. I love it. As you were talking, I was just like, mm, can they maybe dub over Flipper? Huh? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I just hope that they we when we talk to them, they're thanking us for all the fish. Yeah. You know, that all the fish that we're giving them. That's from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy okay. is that it turns out that all the dolphins say so long and thanks for all the fish. OK, OK. Just you a just reference. ripped that out, and, then, and you're just, like, everybody knows. Everybody knows that they, they're thanking us for all the fish. But in learning about these studies, mm -hmm. I learned about a really crazy study involving dolphin communication from 1965. So a research institute run by Dr. John C. Lilly, who is known as the wackiest and most polarizing figure in marine science history. Love it. I want to see this guy. He held an experiment for 10 weeks where his assistant, Margaret Howe, volunteered to live in confinement with Peter, a bottlenose dolphin. Oh. They rebuilt this house and allowed Margaret, who was 23 years old, to, sl to live, sleep, eat, wash, and play intimately with the dolphin. Allowed or like... <laughs> it's just so Allowed. Let me get into it. Indentured servitude. <laughs> well, like, she did volunteer. Okay, okay. I okay. wanted to make that clear. Fair enough. She was his assistant. She volunteered. And she she since wasn't said, trafficked in at all. Just kidding. <laughs> this thing is crazy. Okay. So the main objective was to see whether a dolphin could be taught human speech. Right, sure. But the, and the pictures of this are crazy. With this very 60s looking woman, like in a very 60s sure. looking house, like talking on the phone with like a dolphin. She's like, no, the dolphin. Yeah. You know, like. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> Dr. Lilly, the guy who had like run the experiment, he had become interested in dolphins in the 50s after performing a series of inner consciousness investigations on himself. 
Boo. Where he took LSD and floated around for hours in salt water. Sounds about right. <laughs> which was actually early sensory deprivation tanks, which he later did pioneering research on. Right. I fucking After love it. this dolphin shit. Oh, man. I want to go in one of those tanks. Imagine doing LSD in that. That's nuts. I know. Okay. And yeah, it, that like led him to the belief that dolphins were our cognitive equal and that they might have a form of telepathy that would be important to understanding alien communications. Telepathy. Now, this study with like his assistant, Margaret, Seems a little sketchballs. It's a little sketchballs and was seen as that at the time. Now, so she's living with this thing for 10 weeks. Her bed was a suspended foam mattress, which she eventually fitted with a shower curtain so that Peter, the dolphin, splashes, wouldn't wake her up at night. Okay. (laughs) She noticed that, like, during the few times she had outside contact, which was usually on the phone, Peter would, like, talk over her in a very loud and competitive way. Oh, he didn't want her talking to anybody else. The bond was really real. Super jealous. So she's trying to teach it to speak and by week three she's like really losing her mind like she's getting strained and stressed and peter's whining and making loud noises all day and night for apparently no reason she's tired she's pissed off and then she encounters a new issue quote peter begins having erections and has them frequently when i play with him Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, go uh, dolphins rape people. Remember, that was a whole thing for a while. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, this isn't, this doesn't go to a rape. Right, but still, you're like, like oh, my God, but this goes to a weird. <laughs> it goes to a weird. Did she play with this dingus? No. Got to a point where her legs was co- were covered in bruises because Peter kept jamming into her. Oh, with his pee-pee. So she took the matters into her own hands. As <laughs> I literally figured it <laughs> As I saw it put, Margaret <laughs> felt that the best way of focusing his mind back on his lessons was to relieve his desires herself manually. I can't. Shaw. Dolphin hand jobs. <laughs> it's, it's what this is about. Oh, my <laughs> fucking God, dude. So <laughs> I wanted to read this little bit from an article about this. As Peter became increasingly gentle, tactile, and sensitive to Margaret's feelings, he began to woo her by softly stroking his teeth up and down her legs. I stand very still, legs slightly apart, and Peter slides his mouth gently over my shin, she wrote in her diary. Peter is courting me. He has been most persistent and patient, obviously a sexy business. No, I... The mood is very gentle, still, and hushed. All movements are slow. She was interviewed like more recently yeah. in a documentary about this. She talks about the whole experience more philosophically, and she says, it was very precious. It was very gentle. It was sexual on his part. It was not sexual on mine. Sensual, perhaps. Oh, my goodness gracious. So many emotions being flooded. <laughs> because you're like, yeah, they're... We're all animals. I'm not like shocked to think that right. in, in that close of quarters that there it's not possible for something like that to happen, especially with the sophisticated creatures like dolphins. Right. It's just when you're talking about relieving the dolphins, right. giant well, raging heart on. I'm like, I can't. Because it sounds like it was like he couldn't focus on the lessons that she was like trying to teach him how to like right. say words and stuff. My eyes are up here. Right. It's like constantly he's just like losing. Let me just jerk him off and relax a bit and listen. <laughs> just like real life. Um. So in the end, they didn't really find anything definitive about dolphin communication from oh this study. My- like really widely considered to be just a crazy thing that somebody did. Oh man! Well, when I was doing all that stuff on uh, Nim Chimsky, oh yeah, the same doctor that was behind all of that shit, he was doing some weird like figuring out female chimpanzee, yeah, uh, there was like, like orgasms and shit. <laughs> yeah. And it's like philosophically or even just on a scientific level, I understand wanting to understand animal sexuality but like right. dude you don't want to be living in close quarters with like a super horny dolphin <laughs> well they were saying like she left the project after that and like i'm a new woman she yeah yeah and one of the scientists or the veterinarian noticed like he was worried about peter because peter was madly in love with her peter oh my god that's nuts <laughs> but yeah she even said that like his attentiveness helped her overcome depression and fits of self-pity during the 10-week isolation experiment that it really was you know like right. she's alone in this house <laughs> so she's unable to go anywhere talk to anybody except a dolphin it's like really it's an isolation on a human right. oh, <laughs> started to fall in love. oh yeah. my god i don't even know how to end that there there's no good way to end that no. <laughs> 
This next section is from episode 15, The Fly. Let's get into some horrifying fly facts. Okay. I just have a big old fucking list. I've got a bunch of stuff, too. Okay. Oh, well, here's... You want to go back and forth one and then one? I think we should. Let, let's give some context before we just get straight up nasty. It's yeah. like, what's the history <laughs> of a housefly? So, apparently, houseflies are relatively young insects on the evolutionary timeline. True flies are ancient creatures that appeared on Earth during the Permian period over 250 million years ago. Mm. However, the earliest known musca fossils, because was I think the fly is called, yeah, musca domestica, yeah. housefly. Yeah. I'm sure I'm saying that completely correct. Muske, musca. Muske, musca, musco, who cares? <laughs> um, the earliest known uh, musca fossils are only 70 million years old, and it looks like the reason that they are around is because of humans so like that was one of the other things like houseflies only exist where humans are really yeah i didn't get that one really they houseflies are believed to be native to central asia but now they inhabit every nearly every corner of the of the globe with the exception of antarctica and perhaps a few islands houseflies live everywhere people do Wow. Isn't that nuts? That is nuts. Because there are, you know, there's horse flies or whatever, but the mm-hmm. house fly, like what the Brundle's got turned into. Yeah, because I read that there's more than 120,000 species of flies in the world with 18,000 in North America alone. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know how many different, yeah, if you're talking about the house fly, I guess it does only live around human beings. Yeah. That's pretty They crazy. are known as synanthropic organisms, meaning they benefit ecologically from their association with humans and our domesticated animals. Mm. So. Did you learn if there was like a reason that we want flies around? Because I didn't really find anything that was like, the flies are actually keeping the crops clean right, or like you the know, butter, something. Like the, yeah, uh, like the bees, bees or stuff. something like that. Um, well, I mean, I guess not. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really find. I didn't the, like, find anything that that was thing. like, "Hey, we need flies." So like, huh. even though they're gross, still love them. It's sort of a just like you want to complain about houseflies, complain about too many fucking people, because that's what this other it says. Uh. As humans throughout history traveled to new lands by ship, plane, train, or horse-drawn wagon, houseflies were their travel companions. Uh-huh. And then from there, you know, houseflies are rarely found in the wilderness or in places where humans are absent. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, well, maybe stop shitting and pissing and leaving garbage well, all over the how place. Are we because the thing is like i guess they also love dog shit right you know like any kind of thing that i guess a fly has the smelling distance of over 750 yards yikes so it can smell real far away like i guess they're they're shitting on everything that they they land on oh yeah like every three minutes or something it's it's shitting and then the female house fly only mates once uh-huh. And then carries the sperm around for her whole life. And whenever she like finds a good place to land on like a bunch of human yeah. shit on the ground, she lays like a batch of 100 eggs and then moves on and like just like eggs here and there. And I just thought it was interesting that they they fuck once. But they lay eggs all over the place. That's crazy. Yeah, so female housefly lays an average of 120 eggs at a time. Mm-hmm. They fuck a lot. So it's like they, well, no, I mean, like you said, they fuck once, but it's like they, then there's just so many of them, they're fucking a lot. Yeah. So it's, scientists once calculated what would happen if a single pair of flies were able to reproduce without limits or mortality of their offspring. Mm-hmm. The result, those two flies in just five months' time would produce, I don't even know what this number is. One, two, three, four, five, six. It's like a Googleplex. Yeah, maybe. It's like one, nine, one, and then one, two, three, four, and then six sets of zeros. Wow. Six sets? Like three zeros. Of three zeros? All right. That's a number. 18 zeros. That's enough. 19 and then 18 zeros. Two flies in In how long? Five months. Fuck. Literally. Well, how are we going to ever get rid of these things? Holy shitballs. Yeah, if they didn't die. Oh, my God. Holy God. Here's something that was really interesting that we may be able to use flies for good. Okay. Because the ability of a housefly larvae to feed and develop in a wide range of decaying organic matter is important for recycling nutrients in nature. And research suggests that this adaptation can be exploited to combat the huge amounts of waste in the world. So housefly larvae can be like mass reared in a controlled manner in animal manure and Uh. it reduces the bulk of the waste and minimizes the environmental risks and then 
harvested maggots can be used as feed for animal nutrition. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Yeah, okay, well, let's cover a couple other things that happens in the movie. Here's one thing. Mm -hmm. Remember that really gross scene when Jeff Goldblum's like, hang on, I gotta eat, and then he vomits all over some shit and then slurps it up? Well, that's true. The vomiting, like, it melts down. Like, at one point, he he pukes on a guy's ankle, and it just, like, melts his through his ankle. Yeah. Like, it's alien acid blood. Right. Well, because the fly vomit contains digestive enzymes that go to work on the desired snack. And so it pre-digests it because their mouths, they don't have, obviously they don't have teeth, but they just basically have these like sponge-like mouth parts. So they have to spit on it and then suck it all up. And they're not, yeah. Well, the other thing is like their tongues are shaped like straws. Yeah. So they're like, like, oh, I drink (laughs) your milkshake. Your shit shake. Well, they also, they fucking eat whatever that, you know, because sometimes I'll be like. Anything liquid, right? Yeah. Well, anything. So even if he lands on your goddamn hamburger, they could just be like, and then just like some part of it will, that enzyme will eat it up and they'll suck it up. But you know, sometimes I'll be at picnics and just be like, geez, these flies. But I'm never like too upset about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, a little oh, bit like, come these, on, get out oh, of these come on, flies. Go Don't away. kill the fly. Yeah, I'm not going to swap the fly. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, you fuck. <laughs> like, no wonder there's all these crazy like fly. I know that there's yeah. the mosquito shit with already out of the news. The, the bi- oh, the, the Zika virus Zika, and yeah, stuff. God. Yeah, God. God, that was so huge last year. Now we're like, Zika? Nobody's talking about it anymore. Any of those um, pandemics of the day, usually I don't put too much stock in them. Or yeah. I'm freaking out about them. Oh, also, it, although it can try to eat you and like vomit on your skin, it's not strong enough to actually melt human skin. Right. Sure. So that's... Otherwise, Don't worry about all it. of us would be melted away. Oh, my God. We would be destroyed. I know. Uh, yeah. That, way too small to be like, no! Gross. Yeah, I guess exactly. that's kind of like how daddy long legs are supposed to be like super poisonous, but their teeth are too small to bite humans. Right. Daddy long legs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one of those that it's like, is that true? They, anybody could have told me that bullshit. And I've never corroborated that. Yeah, evidence. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, no, that's a thing. I just know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact <laughs> yeah. that um, is real. Hey, this is Jeff from the future editing bay. That isn't true at all about the daddy long legs. Most daddy long legs don't even have venom sacks. So the whole thing about their mouths doesn't matter. We just left that as is. Didn't really look that up on the day, but turns out Daddy Long Legs, they aren't even poisonous. So that total urban myth. Bye. Here's a random fact. Before they fly, flies must jump up and move backwards, then forward. That's weird. I don't have a follow-up as to why. Oh, I think I did read something about that because there was something about how its instincts when it sees a possible fly swatter. Mm -hmm. Like, I read this thing about how flies evade fly swatter so well. Uh And it's like its brain can do the mathematical calculation of where it's going to head down to. And then its legs already position itself immediately to be able to jump in the opposite direction. And then when it sees that it's actually a fly swatter coming, it jumps. So it's like this weird innate premonition kind of weird that oh, it like, like prepares itself yeah. to jump. Gotcha. It's like super fucking fast. House flies live what 15, 20 days? Adult flies normally live for yeah two to four weeks, but they can hibernate during the winter. Oh, I didn't know that. Fuck you. Fuck you. Oh, well, so fuck we, you. We've you already said they fly. they taste with their feet. Their feet. Did we say that? Yeah, they no, taste with I their don't feet. think we did. Hey, just... guys, in addition to having gross sponge mouths and, like, acid vomit, they taste with their, taste with their stinky fucking feet. I'm sure they're stinky. I'm sure they're stinky. No doubt in my they're mind. They're rubbing them on poop. <laughs> their feet are 10 million times more sensitive to sugar than the human tongue. What? Yeah. And, and I got that a sweet makes sense tooth. Because I'm, <laughs> and I got a sweet tooth. Well, and it makes sense because did you notice also how Jeff Goldblum becomes more like, hey, 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 oh, throughout yeah, the thing. It's like, no wonder. I, I think I said during during the, sh- the movie, what did I say? I said something super fucking clever. Let me just, let <laughs> yeah. me just scroll Joy up. was real genius. Just, no, I was saying Jeff Goldblum is the perfect person to play someone on a sugar high. Oh, yeah. Right? Like if the fly is like, I'm so sensitive to sugar. It yeah. makes sense. But also it makes <laughs> sense with our like. It's clearly an allegory for drug because, addiction. Because, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. uh, and, and the other thought. Either Jeff Goldblum on sugar or cocaine, it's just a yeah. recipe for disaster <laughs> and a lot of erratic behavior. Yeah. You have one more fly fact? Yeah. This is kind of weird. So, you know how, like, a male in a human being carries the kind of genetic information of whether or not the offspring is going to be male or female? Uh-huh. Because women are XX, men are YX, and so it's male determination of how it's done. We don't know still how the housefly's sex is determined. 
it's thought like to exhibit several different mechanisms for sex determination, like male heterogamy, which I think is like us, mm-hmm. female heterogamy, which is like birds, and and also maternal control over offspring sex. And the exact mechanism of sex determination in the housefly is still unresolved. So I find that amazing. We have something that's so around us all the time. You'd think that we've studied it to death right. and we still don't know for sure how right. it's determined sex. Interesting. Like I, I find that incredibly hard to believe with like we haven't mapped the genome of the housefly. Of the housefly. We must have. And that didn't give us that information. I, well, it's it, it doesn't seem like it would be for lack of trying, right? Maybe no, it's it just doesn't. like there's yeah. such mysterious poop creatures that like <laughs> Yeah. But I, it just, it, that's one of those things that reminds me in this podcast a lot. We talk about like how far we've come yeah. and how much we know. And it's a good reminder all the time of like, we're still pretty early in that hockey yeah. stick graph. We're still from, early in understanding animals, let alone ourselves. Ourselves, yeah. Or insects, right? Mm-hmm. And we're all, but we're all connected. So to pretend like we somehow know everything about us or like what, what, gender or sex or whatever is here. Is, yeah. Is, I, I mean, I still can't get over that fact that fruit flies carry 60% of the genome yeah. of a human being. It's fucking wild. That's nuts. Up next is a little section from episode 31. Up is down, down is up, Taco Bell is all the restaurants, where we watch the movie Demolition Man. On that front of just like everyday materials being used for extraordinary things, I remembered this thing called Sharklet. Mm-hmm. And Sharklet Technologies is this company that realized that bacteria doesn't seem to grow on shark's skin the way it does on normal surfaces. Mm-hmm. And it actually doesn't have to do with their body fighting it off or anything. It has to do with the structure of the shark's skin. Okay. They created a surface that's covered with microscopic diamond-shaped bumps. And bacteria basically can't grow on it. It doesn't stop bacteria completely, like 100%, but they want to put this on every surface in a hospital because more than 90% less bacterial growth on every surface that has this and it like feels like a normal wall because it's microscopic diamond cool. shaped bumps. But I just love that like it, it doesn't have anything to do with like a chemical or anything like that. It's just if you make little tiny bumps on the surface, then bacteria can't grow on it. It's like it's hard to think in microscopic terms all the time. But it's like ultimately these are just structures mm-hmm. on a very, very tiny scale. But so yeah, wait, they just you, can't like form a colony. Right. So like practical application you said could be on like used inside homes and stuff? Homes, hospitals. I mean, first hospitals because like, you know, there's bacteria around there and you're touching every surface. And if Mm -hmm. the surface just couldn't really have bacteria grow on it, it then, you know, door handles, like you name it, everything in a hospital should be made out of this. Sterile as fuck. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk more about this next week because we're going to do Mimic 2 and this is kind of biomimicry stuff. Yeah, Mimic as well, not Mimic 2. We're not going to subject you guys to that. (laughs) Yeah, good clarification. Mimic 1 was enough. But yeah, shark skin's a crazy thing. It's like inspired aerodynamic cars. It's used in swimsuits for Olympic swimmers. Shark skin, the actual... Well, like stuff based on shark skin. Right, so that's what I like. like, Oh, because I was like, oh no. (laughs) Do I have to worry about the furs and the sharks? Exactly. I've got to worry about a lot. Now, here's a little section from episode 43, Try to Jerk Off with This Buddy, where we watched the movie Edward Scissorhands. Oh, wait, at some point they're in graveyards in this movie, right? They're just, there's, yeah, there's well, some macabre moments. There's a very macabre, is, is there a graveyard like on the premises? I of think so. Eddie's place? I remember seeing this and being like, ah, it's, again, a very Nightmare Before Christmassy moment, I mm. felt. Anyway, I yeah. wanted to look into craziest graveyards, guys, strap in. Let's start beyond the pyramids. Where are we going? <laughs> That's right. Let's let's move to the Philippines, shall we? Oh. Now they had an ancient practice of basically mounting these wooden coffins on cliff faces or alongside the faces of mountains. They oh. were often these coffins were often carved by the deceased prior to their death, which is really fucking weird. That is creepy as fuck. Really from. creepy. Like, here we go. Let me, yeah, working Who knows every how long day I have. a little bit on I hope I finish it before oh. it's time. That's very efficient, isn't it? Well, now, conventional wisdom suggests that this was done to keep wild animals away, but, you know, wooden coffins are going to deteriorate over time and collapse to the ground eventually anyway, so it's kind of even more gross, and you're just like... (laughs) Like a body falls from the fucking mountain. Eventually, it's like... (laughs) Wood breaks. (laughs) Now, in the Sichuan province in China, where the Bo people lived several centuries ago, they also attached a number of coffins that were carved from hollowed-out tree trunks to the steep sides of several mountains. Some archaeologists believe that the Bo thought that this would make it easier for the gods to collect their spirits. 
Oh, like Easy getting access. closer up to yeah. heaven? Instead of having to, you know, dig. Yeah, or like come all the way down from that mountaintop yeah. and then dig? Come break, on. Break into the mausoleum, that kind of thing. So they've had similar practices in Indonesia and otherwise, but what, what would you think about that if we just had like a cliff of, of corpses and That's coffins? an interesting concept. I, I kind of like... You get it, right? I like do I get, get it. it. I get it. Like you know, you look up and you kind of remember them. It's like even more. It's like a Mount Rushmore of your ancestors. Yeah. But well, that'd be cool. But then you wonder if it is just for the utilitarian reason of like you don't want animals to get at it. Or right. You, I mean, I don't know if they were looking at it as being like, and then every time you look up, you'll see you know, right, grandma right. up on or, the side. Because decomposition happens anyway. I don't know. I I, I guess like. For the first 10 or 15 years, that's the most common time that a family member would go to visit yeah. a deceased loved one. Yeah. So maybe it like allows them that time before. <laughs> yeah. You're just <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like seeing his, the care story. He's like, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I, you know. I, I'm going to I'm gonna go with easier for the gods to pick up their spirits. Yeah, that, that sounds makes, a little bit more cuckoo kachoo like makes ancient sense style, to me. right? Yeah. yeah. Make it easy. Don't come down all the way from your loft all the way to the <laughs> yeah yeah we, the ground below we're doing you a favor gods totally. so then in paris france there's the catacombs which is this huge underground collection of bones this began in the late 18th century when the parisian government decided to exhume a massive grave at the center of town and then they transferred all of these fucking bodies to the abandoned mines that were below the city oh. how many bones how many bodies Six million bodies. What? So the catacombs, yeah, they're open to the general public. Apparently, How they many get things like, in history involved six million dead people. <laughs> so specific, dangerously specific. <laughs> yeah, but like two hundred fifty thousand people visit these catacombs every year, and most of the time, it's you know, no one gets lost. But I, uh, apparently, there's been some some people that have been trying to get really deep down in there, but then you get fucking lost because you're in right. this underground city, basically. Ancient. Yeah, but no I, light. For some reason, and I'm probably taking this from, like, video games I've played, I I thought they were, like, sewer-like, the catacombs, and now that I'm thinking it through, it's like, why would that be where you would put dead bodies? And realizing, like, they're old mines? Yeah. That's really fascinating. And also that they hadn't initially thought of putting them there. They, they just, like exhumed a mass grave i'm not sure if it was because they were like what they wanted to do to the mass grave or right, why they felt right. they need to put them there but exhuming a mass grave and then just relocating like, the bones it's, it's it can't be to find the murderer <laughs> i know okay then off the coast of florida there is the neptune memorial reef and this is 40 feet below water and it's basically just these massive structures that are made from a combination of cement and cremated human remains Ooh. so these ashes and the cement they they create these memorial plaques with the names of quote-unquote residents affixed to the structures so like the whole look of it is this kind of underwater city with roads and benches that divers can actually sit on what? so it's like these sculptures that are not only there to you know memorialize dead people but also they provide homes for marine life and stuff like that that's now, amazing is that fucking cool i'd never even heard of such a thing a grave that's also a reef yeah that's such a great idea totally and then it's in you know actual structures too it's not just kind of amorphous blob reefs it's like actual you know with like a whole underwater water city yeah that's like a halfway step to that concept where where you can like plant your dead body into a tree oh, yeah. and then you plant the tree and, and that, that's like, like new school shit that's really new stuff but it's kind of like a halfway step to that process yeah. where it's like you're using the decomposition to feed more wildlife totally but well, also it's like a whole fucking city under yeah there. So totally cool. well and it's also like how much space are we taking up with just like rotting carcasses right. in the ground i mean i think there's a lot of a I've noticed a lot more of a change in terms of what people want to do, whether it's like just straight up cremate me or, mm. yeah, this tree pod thing. It's like, I want to give back to the earth that right. I've taken so much from, right? Might as well. Yeah. If you believe that, you know, the soul doesn't really exist in the traditional form and that what you are is elements that can then like do more good for totally. the world, then you're going to be somebody who donates organs and wants to decompose in a way that creates more life. But I also think that a lot of people are so weirded out by just the idea of their own mortality. Yeah. let alone the fact that like you mean my body's gonna decompose no i'm gonna stay in this coffin forever it's like yeah. you're gonna decompose anyway you can either you know do the mummy route and try mm -hmm. to keep it all preserved or just be like no i'm made of fucking carbon and all right. these elements and you know and other things need that yeah and they can take little bites of me <laughs> A little bit more macabre here. There's the Sedlik Ossuary, which is in the town of Kutnahora in the Czech Republic. 
And this ossuary contains the bones of between 40,000 and 70,000 people. Some of the bones have been used to create coats of arms. Some Whoa. of the bones have been made to create this chandelier that's constructed from at least one of every bone in the human body. Basically, everywhere you look, there's furniture that's made from human bones. That's so cool. It's cool, but the, it's fucking weird, man. It is it's, really weird. And like looking at the pictures, it kind of looks fake, right? You know, we have so many things oh. that we make out of bones uh -huh. you know, for Halloween. But it's and always like stuff. plastic and stuff. Totally. And it's it, like, is that real? I don't yeah. know. But the idea of like a chandelier that's made from each of the individual, like there's yeah. some kind of celebration of human anatomy happening there that yeah. I think is pretty cool. I mean, it's, we have the bodies exhibit. Like I know, I know. I, yeah, it's and it's really about our weirdness with death. Let's move over to Romania. There's something called the Mary Cemetery. And this there's this guy, his name's Stan Ion Patras, Ion, who knows? He was a local <laughs> woodcarver who apparently loved gossip. And so when a town resident would die, he would carve them a wooden cross for their grave that depicted their life in all its glory, from triumph to tragedy. Oh, no. So he, the, this graveyard is really fucking pretty, though, because it's filled with these, like, wildly colored grave markers that often depict scenes from the person's life and sometimes not as commonly the cause of their death. Oh, okay. So this guy died in 1977, but his apprentice is still carrying on the tradition. And so it's just this idea of, like, creating this you know, true representation of the departed's life. And mm. I think about that, of what that would be, like how cool it would be to not just, you know, here lies Joya, she really liked Butterfingers or whatever, you know, but like to see a picture, like what would your gravestone look like? I'd just be worried that it would turn out to be like a beach caricature artist. Caricature artist yeah. yeah, like I don't want it to be a caricature artist. Right, totally. Depiction of like me on a skateboard with totally. like my hat backwards. Because, <laughs> you know, I told him I like skateboarding. Yeah, right, right, right. It, it's not like you know, the most realistic thing, but I think it would just, if there was one tableau, like mm. one image that would be you... What the fuck would that be? That's a good question. I mean, I, it's a cool idea. I think it's yeah. better than here lies somebody who was a father. Right, right. I think it would have to be done from a personal point of view. You know what yeah. I mean, though? It, like, that seems kind of odd to go to someone and be like, so what was Joya like? Well, yeah, she But that's been. what, like, priests and rabbis do at every yeah. funeral. I think we've talked about this before. Where right, I think that's bullshit, too. Yeah, it's like, so what was he like? Oh, he, he liked hamburgers? Yeah. Great. Uh, John liked hamburgers. Everybody, yeah, and then everybody, everybody laughed like, oh. because they're like, oh, he did. He, he sure loved, loved those, those hamburgers. hamburgers. <laughs> I think mine would at least have like a finger gun and a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, I th you should definitely. It's you like. Yeah. There should, and there should be like a sound that is associated with it and Yay. it's a snap. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hey. Oh, God. <laughs> scootily doot. Scoot, scootily doot. <laughs> Just, Just like scoot. as you're walking around, you're like mourning your your mother and like nearby, you hear joyous scootily <laughs> doot. Yeah, I would have, I would definitely have just like a hidden boombox yeah. in my grave. Just like well, that, always scootling. I think it was in the movie Toys with Robin Williams. Oh God, like I, yeah. his character's dad was buried with a barrel of laughs. Oh. Which like, so like they go to like visit his grave and there's like this cackling laughing coming from the grave. That'd be like, mine. I wouldn't want to be that annoying though. Right. That was, But Just it was a like. a subtle hint that I'm there. Yeah. And, and, and that you lived a life of silliness and, yeah. and enjoyment. 100%. Yeah. So there's this one graveyard, Khalid Nabi, that is located in northern Iran. And it's become a tourist attraction because about 600 of the site's grave markers resemble erect penises jutting forth oh from the soil. Oh, my God. And others look like, apparently, according to this article, they claim that the others look like the outline of women with huge titties. But I don't think so. I, <laughs> I can see the dicks, though. And some people will say, like, archaeologists will say that, no, no, those grave markers, it's they're just supposed to be designed to look like, you know, men who are wearing turbans. But I'm like, eh, they look like dicks. They're yeah. like mad skitty. They have a distinct, like, There's head. no, no <laughs> yeah. mistaking. So you just have this field of dicks. <laughs> I mean, there's an obsession that human beings have had since the beginning of time. Yeah. And like, what's in a life? Just a lot of dicks. <laughs> then there's the village of Dargovs, which is on, on a hillside in Russia. And from a distance, it looks like just basically a bunch of stone huts on this, like, beautiful grassy hillside. Cool. But they're actually mausoleums, which were built by the native people in the 17th century. Legend has it that a plague had ravaged the community, and so the residents had to build these little mausoleums, oh. you know, the houses to, to quarantine the people, but then they later just like acted Turned as mausoleums too because well, one would assume the people inside died. Yeah. And, but it's just, you know, it's creepy because you see these cute little like, could be some bed mm. and breakfasts, but yeah. actually it's just oh, no. fucking mausoleums. This one's fucking interesting. This is in Yekaterinburg, located in the Ural Mountains. 
it's the fourth largest city in Russia, but it's and it's known for metal processing and machine work, but it is also known for organized crime. So mm-hmm. some of the region's most notorious mafia bosses are buried in an alley in this cemetery with massive black marble tombstones that are laser etched with photorealistic portraits of the gangsters oh in their God. prime. <laughs> and beneath the pictures of the gangsters are descriptions of their skills like expert in knife throwing. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like an avenue of the stars, but mafiosos i guess wow yeah. like jimmy the hammer totally and it's like he was really good at hammering heads right but i mean what do you do i, I it seems weird to spe- like specifically make an area for the mob bosses yeah at the same time you're like i guess there are people out there that want to honor these well people. i guess that speaks to how organized the crime is <laughs> right. in that area oh god this one's fucking interesting there's the chinese cemetery that's located in manila in the philippines this is known as the beverly hills of the dead oh Wow. So Beverly Hills. Yeah, that's right. It was there in front of me. I can't. (laughs) So the cemetery was built during the Spanish colonial period. And Chinese folks are who are not Catholic, right? They are forbidden from being buried. So they would often use, they would build these mausoleums. And mausoleums were often used as well because of the humid climate. So... So yeah. that's just a way to bury somebody above ground. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think trying to th- I think some of my family's burned in a mausoleum. But oh, yeah, really? I think it's just I don't know if it's more religious or if it's just another thing. Mm. Basically in this Chinese cemetery, these rich Filipinos, they built these fancy mausoleums for their dead family members. So in keeping with the tradition, they they're equipped with like beds and bathrooms and other conveniences for the dead to use. Now, of course, the buildings are so fucking big that in a lot of cases, living relatives have also moved into them to save money. Oh, man. <laughs> like, you have a bathroom, you have a bed. Why are we hell? living here? What yeah. are we, we're already paying rent. Which is, like, I That's don't know crazy. what my, my biggest issue is not the fact that the people are moving into them. It's the idea that, like, dead fucking people need beds and bathrooms when there's so many homeless yeah. folks in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're That's so a really good wealthy. point. <laughs> well, I'm just also thinking, like, it's like, oh, that would be so weird to, like, live near a dead person. Then it's like, my grandfather's ashes were in my grandmother's house, like, growing up, just on the shelf. Right? Yeah. yeah, and, like, I was like, oh, there's his ashes. Like, I guess... That's a mausoleum, her house, yeah. you know, in a way. Totally. They look really fancy. They look fancier than a lot of the places yeah, I've lived. Yeah, I totally get being like, why should we only hold our dead yeah. in this beautiful place? Totally. What, what like I want to know about the bathrooms is, do they have plumbing working or plumbing, plumbing <laughs> water? Yeah, I honestly don't know if it's for show, if it's a decoy, but mm. if real live people are moving in, <laughs> right, then they probably then... have some kind of... Although that's weird, too. You're like, so then who charges you rent? Yeah. Is there rent here? Do you, you buy it? continue... I don't know if you don't keep paying a cemetery to like house a dead body. I don't know, but you are taking up space, right? Yeah. I thought you just bought a plot. I think you buy a plot of land and then that you just own that. Like I know my dad's got his thing all set up, which is another weird fucking thing to be like, well, let me just get this all set up for when I kick the bucket. But better that than to leave you all with like, oh, what do we do now? Yeah, like, we just what did got he this want? Dead body. Yeah, totally. Well, if you found it weird to potentially live next to some corpses, let me finish off my little list with New Lucky Restaurant Uh-oh. in Ahmadabad, India. Now, the owner, Krishnan Kuti, he bought an old Muslim cemetery with about a dozen graves in it, and he decided to open a cafe where Uh-oh. you can eat with corpses. Wait, eat with them? Yep, near them, in the same room. Now, each of the grave areas is blocked off with waist-high iron fencing that I guess you just, like, see from the sidelines. But then the rest of the space is filled with tables. So every morning, (laughs) Kuti and his staff, they wipe down the graves, they replace the flowers on them, and then they open for business. And apparently, he's doing very well financially, and patrons don't seem to mind the corpses. They don't mind it? It's not like a selling point? Or is it point? a tourist? <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Like What kind of food he, is he serving? He bought the... Th- Indian food? <laughs> Indian food? Like, yeah, I don't it's know. Traditional? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not the point, Jeff. Not the point. <laughs> but just the idea that he was like, well, I bought this land, but I got to keep it over. I have something commercial, right? Because you're not getting any money from that, that Well, land. it's better than like what they did in Poltergeist, where it's like, you only moved the tombstone. Stones. Oh, right, because it was like an ancient burial. <laughs> yeah, like, it was like oh. an ancient Indian burial ground where this like modern suburban house is built. Right. And then like they wind up like digging up a pool at the end. And like there's, all the there's like all these corpses and they're like they go to like the realtor. And he's like, you only move the tombstones. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. that's why all this weird shit's going on. If you're going to do that, that should be the biggest selling point. Because right. there's plenty enough people out there that are, I don't know why, because it's like there are many 
cemeteries out there. If someone really wanted to get their kicks there, they could just go drive, have like, a picnic, have a fucking cemetery <laughs> picnic. They, we watch movies at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I would imagine it was probably more of a financial thing. Like, I want a restaurant, but all I have is right. this corpse This land. is my land. Let me turn it into. I mean, look, people go to the Heart Attack Cafe in oh, places yeah. like that where it's like. Right. Like, give you the themed, biggest burger of your fucking life. They, like, have, like, IVs and stuff, and, yeah. like, they're they're proud of how many people have died in their restaurant. But it's, like, the the gimmick is something fucked up, yeah. and people are into it. Oh, it's yeah. definitely, like, a, a, a thing with restaurants. <laughs> I wouldn't go there. I would give it a poor Yelp review. Yeah, I mean, if, if they're putting out really good food, I might go. <laughs> God damn it. Here's a little section on why sounds are scary from episode 20, Hard Packages Sperminating the World, where we watched the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. What makes scary sounds scary? What does make scary sounds scary? I'm going to tell you. So you think about the Jaws music, right? Iconic mm. Jaws music. Da-dum, da-dum. Oh, you want me to play it? Oh, no. Here it goes. <laughs> Psycho. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, as we've talked about throughout Invasion of the Body Snatchers, there's not only music, but then there's the sounds that come out of the pod people, which is like kind of a screech. It's very inhuman. I think of a pterodactyl, but I don't really know what a fucking pterodactyl <laughs> yeah, yeah. sounds like. But this kind of screech, there's it sounds animalistic in its own right. So there's something about that coming out of a human that's already unsettling. Like I it almost sounds like a breathing in noise, like that. <gasps> right. But also out like at the in same and out time. At the same time. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, oh, I think of like the T1000 when he gets when he's in the lava and it's like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, like so mouth weird. is turning into faces, and <laughs> right. then the mouth is turning exactly. into exactly. Well, because it's also like the physicality of like the distortion it's the the donald Sutherland opening his mouth so there's like Mm. definitely visual in tandem with the audio stuff researchers believe that there are biologically ingrained reasons why sudden dissonant sounds and minor chords make us apprehensive so daniel bloomstein he's the leading scientist on this study uh he's also an expert in animal distress calls he studied yellow-bellied marmots in colorado and he noticed that baby marmots often screamed when researchers caught them so in in scientific jargon those screams are classified as quote non-linear chaotic noise Hmm. Bloomstein first explored the link between such nonlinear noise and scary music in a uh, 2010 study of movie soundtracks. He discovered that horror scores made heavy use of such sounds, and in films like The Shining, Mm. for example, they used recordings of animal screams. Mm -hmm. I've definitely read before that, like, sometimes when there's a suspenseful reveal, Mm -hmm. even if it has nothing to do with an animal, they'll throw in the sound of a predator, like a a roar of a lion or Mm -hmm. something, and the fact that we have it ingrained in us that we fear predators Mm. it inherently gets that even though we don't consciously think oh that's a lion right and you don't even hear it as a lion roar exactly you just know that that moment scared i think another example i remember seeing that movie the grudge oh yeah if you saw that but there's this scene where the the, you know the tiny little ghost asian boy like Uh. meows and opens his mouth really wide there's this meow and i remember even just seeing the 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 preview being like that creeped me out in a way mm-hmm. that I couldn't describe until we saw Bo- Invasion of the Body Snatchers in mm. that final shot of Donald Sutherland. So this kind of makes sense. It's unexpected. You don't right. expect an animal sound to come out of a human being, so it's almost more... It's kind of its own uncanny valley. Ow! <laughs> I talk... I mean, my boyfriend is going to appreciate this because I very often speak in animal noises. <laughs> very much just like, I don't really want to ask you to hand me the remote. I'm just going to be like... Meh. It's kind of embarrassing, actually. Researchers also found that musical clips where the melodies suddenly became higher provoked greater emotional stimulation than than moments when the notes suddenly went lower. Hmm. And this may be linked to the study of animal calls. For example, a marmot's scream goes higher when the marmot's vocal cords go tenser, and this tensing would likely occur when the animal is scared. Well, I'm just reminded of, at one point, I didn't know that that my friend was coming over and he just showed up on the, my patio once and I turned and I looked and I just saw him like standing outside the window <laughs> yeah. and I screamed so much like a girl, right. like a little, right. it, like a three-year-old. Like right. It was like, ah! <laughs> like I was so like, 
and I looked at him like, oh, I, I don't even know where that came yeah. from. I Dude, didn't, yeah. the sounds that come out of people's mouths when you really scare them. It's unlike anything, either, you know, something as laughable as sounding like a little girl, but then also just this kind of the guttural, just like, oh, yeah. like that sound well, has come out of You sometimes me make fun of me for the noises I make when we're playing like Resident Evil or oh, something. Yeah. Where we're like, we play some horror video games <laughs> right. sometimes and it comes out and I'm like, ah, right. fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Like this, the diaphragm support coming out of this man. He's like a goddamn opera singer. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's really amazing. This, you don't even realize, like, oh, my, I didn't realize I had so much breath control but yeah. until I got spooked. But, okay, so let me take this even further. So there's the, the sounds, like, ah, screechy, animal-y sounds. Mm-hmm. But then music. Music theorists long ago identified the exact combinations of notes that are the most disturbing to our ears, although they never really figured out why they sound so dissonant. Hmm. So the tritone, which are two notes that are three whole steps apart, like F and B, they're known as diabolus in musica, which is devil in music. So in the Middle Ages, mm. they those certain notes were like banned. <laughs> they were just like, they've been carefully avoided so as wow. not to be associated with any type of negative emotion. Let's take a listen to what a tritone sounds like. So that sound, right? That's kind of like creepy music. I don't know if it's still that because it goes up or or what it is that makes you just feel like unsettled. Yeah, it's it's I feel like I've heard it before in movies and I wonder yeah, why did it get labeled the devil? Just because people were like freaked out by it? I think because it it sounded evil. Like Mm -hmm. it sounds Mm -hmm. The devil's tone. Yeah, so the devil's in the details. So it may you know, to me it's all kind of wrapped up in that like you know, whatever's ingrained into making you avoid danger i suppose another instrument that that music folks would use for movies is the theremin oh the yeah we've talked about the theremin before it's a musical instrument from the 20s with two antennas where you wave your hands over it and it makes music in different pitches and stuff But it's that quintessential, like, very unsettling. I think because it's that it's such an odd, it's like a very mm-hmm. sharp sound. Yeah. But then that like kind of movement. The well, I guess these are very all noises. Like, yeah, these are noises that like you've never really heard in nature. Yeah. And or if you have their danger right. noises. So I guess it makes like. <laughs> I would love if there was a bird call that was like. <laughs> oh, it's the ghost bird. I want to say hello. <laughs> Richard well, Attenborough, like, like the ghost bird, yeah. <laughs> lives in. I the- would say the only ghost bird I can think of is an owl. Those are like, hoo, 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 hoo. yeah, and it is like associated with night, right? And in, scary in cloak times. of midnight, yeah. yeah. Alfred Hitchcock, he, Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> He was saying that, like, in Psycho, the majority of the the fear came from the music. Yeah. And I would completely agree because, I mean, of course, when someone goes ooga booga in the shower and mm-hmm. starts stabbing you, there's that. But, I mean, that iconic, <laughs> like, anybody knows what that is. I guess that's what I think is interesting, too, is, like, we have very iconic, spooky sounds. Yeah, yeah. Da-dum. 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 That's another one that goes yeah. up. Like they all go up at the end. I never noticed that before. Right. But then then especially the kind of movements where it's like you don't necessarily feel the step happening, where it's just kind of like, (laughs) it gets like very dissonant. You're like, I can't tell if this is beautiful or terrifying. I know. You're creeping me out right now. (laughs) And here's a little section from episode seven. Gattaca. You were talking about like what we're attracted to in each other. And I actually did a little research on that and how like genetics plays a role in who we choose as friends or lovers. Oh, okay. There's like a couple of studies where people appear to be more genetically like their friends than like strangers. And there's like a few different. But I thought strangers were just friends you haven't made yet. (laughs) I guess it's all a matter of perspective. <laughs> Apparently, like, friends are as genetically similar as fourth cousins. What? It's as if they shared a great, great, great grandparent in common. Holy gua. Who says this? I mean, this is uh, according to a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Huh. This is from, like, this year. You know, I mean, like, these aren't hard and fast rules. Like, right, of course. You know, there's, like, a couple of different theories on what leads to this because this study involved nearly 2,000 adults 
And one of the ideas was what they're calling the coffee effect or the Starbucks effect. Oh, boy. Because if you genetically like really love the smell of coffee and you're drawn to a place where other people have been drawn to who, because they also love the smell of coffee, then you're all there together because you love coffee and you wind up making friends. Oh, OK. You all I see. Love coffee. If you're genetically inclined to be a total fucking meth head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you're going to be friends with other people who are genetically inclined to be total fucking meth heads. Now I'm getting it. <laughs> But they also found some interesting differences among friends. They tend to have very different genes for their immune systems. And that was like especially true among spouses. And one of the reasons they think that is true is because it gives us extra protection. If our spouses have an immune system that fights off a disease that we're susceptible to, they'll never get it and then we'll never get it. And so it gives us an extra layer of protection. What? I would totally... I mean, that would be like... Tinder of the future. Be yeah. like, can I screen you yeah. for diseases? And, and like, see if you're... Com- are your diseases compatible with mine? Exactly. Or- exactly. Fuck. Don't give them any ideas, Joanne. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, and they also say, like, it's obvious that humans tend to associate with other people who are very similar to themselves. Well, yeah, that I can totally get. But yeah. when you boil it down to, like, genetic shit, well, the that's smell the thing. of coffee. They're like, they say this gives us evidence that it's operating not just at a, very, at a level of very obvious characteristics, but also ones that are a lot more subtle or, like, things that they hadn't really anticipated. Interesting. Oh, boy. It's crazy to think that, like, you just happen to be genetically similar to most of the people that you choose as friends. Because it's like, and then they talked about the idea of, like, you see your friends as family, and in a way, you're kind of choosing friends that are effectively like family. I mean, that totally makes sense. Like, you're you're family. You're forced to deal with. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Right, exactly. Um, All of it completely makes sense. I guess I hadn't boiled it down to, like, on a, you know, microbiotic level. It does make me a little bit more cynical, you know, because all these (laughs) all the time that we spend being like, we're all one. We're all (laughs) just brothers and sisters of I don't don't know this voice that I've been doing. (laughs) We are all one. (laughs) Anytime I'm trying to be like hoity toity or like be like super meta and like this is the moral. This is how I feel. This is melodrama because (laughs) there's a lot of things happening and feelings (laughs) being thrown around and that's my melodrama voice yeah. <laughs> like throw that little scoop okay oh, yes it makes me feel a little bit more cynical to this idea that like we we're, you know we're all just part of the big human race that's that's the one race that we share yeah. if you're like actually no because you don't like the smell of coffee you don't like the smell of coffee that's why i'm friends with her and she right Clearly, I'm being an asshole, but like, right? Especially nowadays when we're trying to remind ourselves if we have anything fucking in common with anybody else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how yeah. do you how do you really believe in the in the sanctity of humanity when you're just like, oh, I guess even genetically we're not. Yeah. We're well, not. especially if you're like picking spouses that are kind of it's like you fucking your cousin. Did you know? You've been married Did to you your know, cousin. You guys have a great connection and all, but like you're essentially fucking your fourth cousin. Yeah. I know that's not that big of a deal, like, but like it's, it it's is. like really no big deal at all, obviously. <laughs> but, oh boy, that's funny. But gross. But gross, dude. So that wraps up our special compilation episode. Next week is going to be 2001 A Space Odyssey for our 50th episode, where I will welcome Joya back, who will probably be tanned, although more likely with her it's probably a sunburn. And we will see you all next week. Bye!